0: Here's what we've been doing so far in Ephesians chapter 1. We've been setting the table, and we've been putting on the table all these incredible things that belong to a feast, the feast of God's blessing that He has given us in the person of Christ. Now, we've spent 11 weeks uh, covering a whopping 14 verses. So um, you can do the math. There's 155 verses in Ephesians. (laughs) and we're not exactly taking an F-15 jet right through this book. We're going through, we're walking is what we're doing. And the reason that we've gone slow is because I would say that what's on the table in this chapter is so good. It it is uh, the great benediction of the Bible, one of the scholar calls it. Uh, He calls it the soul-satisfying spiritual blessings, just being dumped upon and poured upon the people of God. And so So one by one, what Andrew has been doing is laying before you the spiritual blessings of God, reminding you fundamentally what is true of you in Christ. And so this morning, what I want to do is sort of wrap this section up where we've been and uh, kind of point to where we're headed after the Advent series. Um, So that starts next week, and we'll be in that for four weeks, and then we're going to jump back into Ephesians 1. And, and so what I want to do is just kind of tie this up, give us one last picture of this entire meal that we've been enjoying, and hopefully set the stage for what's ahead. But we're, let's read Ephesians 1, through 3 through 14, one last time, and, uh, and then pray quickly. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Father, we, uh, we just sang a minute ago that our hearts unfold like flowers before you, opening to the sun above. And that would be my prayer Uh, This morning, Lord, who knows how we're coming in and where our hearts are really at. But we pray that the light and the heat of your gospel through the word of truth would open us up to be able to hear again of all the blessings that we possess in Christ. God, it's been a great week for me to be in your word, and I have sensed my own heart unfolding before you in, in various ways. I pray that would be true for our time together. So bring your word and bring your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so to start, I want to set this passage up by just making a couple Bible study observations about our passage. So in verse 3, on the screen, you'll see that the way that Paul starts this is he gives us three prepositions. He says that we have been blessed in Christ, okay, which tells us, who we are. It answers the question, who am I? And then it says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Who am I? And now what do I possess? Who am I and what do I possess? And then we have the third preposition, in the heavenly places. This tells us where we're headed, where we reside. And so what Paul is doing here right off the bat is he is answering some of the deepest and most powerful questions of the soul. Who am I? What do I possess? Where am I headed? Where am I going? And so the book of Ephesians is opening up this identity reservoir that we are meant to tap into for security and power. And Paul is drawing us in right away. He's showing us where God intends for us to go, that in order for us to take this journey, we're going to have to be able to answer those questions in the deepest way possible. Who am I? What do I possess? And where am I headed? And we have to be able to, how we answer those questions, sorry, determines everything about us. Even on the, our, the worst days, even on our worst days, how we answer those questions is fundamental. Remember Jesus' worst day? We get a picture of it in John 13. John 13 is where we find Jesus in the evening meal is being served. The devil has already prompted Judas to betray him. Jesus knew that his hour had arrived. This is the day of his execution. Probably no other day when he would have been more misunderstood, more lonely, more condemned. The judgment of God for the sins of the world is coming upon him. And one of his closest friends stands up to betray him. And yet in that moment, what does John say? It says that Jesus began to tap into An identity reservoir. Look at what it says. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, he rose from the table, took off his feet, off his robes, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. What is Jesus doing there? He is becoming consciously aware of and knowing some things at the fundamental level Who am I? What do I possess? God has given all things into my hands. And where am I going? I'm going back to the Father. And as he digs in, in this moment, to this identity reservoir, he has the power to move forward in obedience and fulfill the plan that God has set out for him. This is really wild stuff. If you think about what Acts chapter 2:23 says, it's not on the screen but Jesus it says that Jesus was delivered up and crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That means that this moment of Jesus' crucifixion and execution was a predetermined, fixed in time thing that God had foreordained and known were told by the prophets that the son would be born into the world crushed for our iniquities and resurrected and ascended securing our salvation and yet what we see in john 13 is just because that has already been determined jesus doesn't just sort of casually stroll through that moment in superman like obedience he has to consciously draw from an identity reservoir he has to tap back into Who he is as the Son of God, what he possesses, and what his future holds for him, and in the same way, I would suggest that what what Paul is doing with Ephesians, the way he sets it up, is he's telling us, "Look, this is where we're going on this journey, and in order for you to walk it well, you're going to have to continually tap into the promises and blessings that are being outlined right from the beginning. So, what are they?" We've already explored these through the last 11 weeks, but remember this, verse 13, to start, and you were also included. Isn't that beautiful? That you were included in God's plans, that God has had a plan from the beginning of the world for the praise of His glory, to get glory, to reconcile a broken world to Himself, and that He (laughs) included you in his plans. It's such a beautiful thing when somebody great has great plans and we hear about them and then the invitation, you're included. I want you in, you're included. This is what God has done for us. God has chosen you, it says, to become holy and blameless in his sight. He's chosen you in love before the foundations of the world. Before one creation, atom of creation is thrown out into the universe, he has set his affections on you. So for all the rejection and missing out that we experience in this world, and we experience it a lot, never with God. You were included, you were desired, you were delighted in, you were chosen in love. And verse 5 says that you were predestined for adoption as sons and daughters. You're a child of God. If you were a child or if you were a parent and you have kids, just think about what that means. A chosen child has full access, unconditional acceptance. But wait, we would say, there's more main courses coming out to this beautiful feast. We read that we have redemption, the forgiveness of every sin, grace upon grace lavished on us, never-ending, inexhaustible grace. Verse 9 says that we actually have access into God's divine plans and His wisdom. He reveals to us that we have a part to play in the reconciling of all things. Not everybody understands that, but you do. You've been given access. You have an inheritance awaiting you, a shared inheritance with Christ. And to guarantee that inheritance, He has sealed you, marked you with the given Holy Spirit. So this is what the last 11 sermons have been about We've slowly looked at these, and they've been a grand and sort of glorious reality check, a reminder, this identity reservoir that we're meant to tap into as we take this journey. So where are we headed? Where are we going again? Well, that's the second observation. That's the second Bible study observation that I want uh, to make is that, well, you know, Bible study 101 always says this. That if you want to interpret accurately what's in the passage, you do it in context. You look at what came before, then you look at what's coming after. And so what Paul is doing in chapter 1, first half of chapter 1, you look at your Bible and see this, he's laying out this grand benediction, telling you all the things that are fundamentally true for you in Christ. All these blessings. Then something interesting happens. There's a shift. That's where we're headed next. And what Paul does is he begins to pray, God, make these realities true. So he says, for this reason, I have not stopped giving thanks. I've not stopped remembering you and continuing to ask that God would open the eyes of your heart. Verse 18, so that you would know him better. And so what Paul is beginning to do is he's beginning to pray that these realities that are true for you would actually become experientially lived out in your life. In the everyday, ordinary moment. By moment, life. So what he's doing, he's he's introducing us to this biblical thread, right? This tension that exists throughout Scripture. The already and the not yet. This is what he's showing us. He's showing us that, yes, you are already holy and blameless in God's sight. And yet, you were to spend your whole life In pursuit of more and more holiness, you are already redeemed, and yet your redemption is ongoing. You already have, you are already the delight of God's heart, and yet there's a way in which we become more and more to the praise of His glory. You have an inheritance that is fixed and secure, and yet we do not yet fully possess it. This is the tension of the already and not yet. And so what Paul is doing here is he's opening this up. He's saying, You're already saved, you're already redeemed, you're already sanctified, already holy. But now the path is seeing that lived out and fleshed out in your life and your beliefs and your, your heart and your affections. This is what Ephesians is all about. John Stott says it this way in his commentary on Ephesians. This whole letter is a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty. It's this combination of the Christian faith and the Christian life. It's a combination of what God has done through Christ and then what we must be and do in consequence. This is the book of Ephesians. And so what we want to do this morning is begin to unpack again what Paul is trying to get us to experience this Tension that we are aware of all the time, probably, between radical grace and radical discipleship. That's the tension to speak of these two realities that are always true for us as Christians. That on the one hand, I am called to totally rest in the finished work of Christ. And then on the very next hand, I'm called to strive and to fight and to pursue holiness and to live for the praise of his glory. Those things go together. Jesus says, come to me and rest. It is finished. He also says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. One of my favorite authors is Brendan Manning. And Brendan Manning says it really simply and beautifully that God loves us unconditionally. Not as how you should be, because no one is as they should be. But God's grace to us is unconditional. It asks nothing of us. And that's really true. That is really true. But another one of my favorites is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he says, there's no such thing as cheap grace. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. It preaches forgiveness without requiring repentance. Grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross the only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. Those messages seem a little different. Do you guys feel that tension? I want to tell you that for most of us, and for me included, for most of my life, I have really lacked the category to be able to hold those two truths together. How do we do that? How do we make sense of those two statements, those two realities. And what we're finding here in Ephesians chapter 1 is that the only way to do it is through this idea of being in Christ, united to Christ. That the only way we can marry the two realities together of radical grace and radical discipleship is through our union with Christ. So that's what we want to unpack this morning. What does it mean to be in Christ, to have union with Christ, this is a, well, he uses this phrase 11 times in the first 14 verses, in Christ. And then he uses the phrase 40 times throughout the rest of the book of Ephesians. And 165 times in Paul's writings, we find the phrase in Christ. So it's obviously pretty important. This is how Paul talks about believers in the faith. He doesn't talk about us as Christians. He talks about us as saints in Christ, and Christ in them. So what does it mean to be in Christ? What does that mean? How do I live it out? So that's what we're going to talk about, for you to be in Christ and for you to have union with Christ. And here's what it means. It means primarily two things, and that when those two things are true, then it's going to give you two things. So the fact that, number one, you are in Christ is going to give you security and assurance. And the fact that Christ is in you is going to give you ability and power. And that's where we're going with the rest of the sermon. Uh, We can rest and have confidence in the freedom that we have because we are in Christ. And secondly, because Christ is in us, we have new power and ability to reflect God's character To walk forward in holiness, to produce fruit in our life, and to move in in obedience. So, and this is what we sing about, right? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from guilt and cleanse me from its power. So Christ does two things. He cleanses from guilt and he cleanses from power, the power of sin. So let's look first at union with Christ through the lens of you are in Christ. And by the way, by the way, this is everywhere in Scripture. Like once you have this lens in Christ, all of a sudden it's everywhere. Uh, so let's unpack it a little bit. Colossians 3:3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are in Christ, hidden with Christ. Have you ever seen, how you ever seen the movie uh, The Blind Side, which came out a few years ago about an NFL player named Michael Orr. And when uh, Michael was in ninth grade, he was six feet, five inches tall, and hun- 290 pounds. And so there was a private Christian school that said, we'd like for you to play with us. And so the movie is really about how uh, this he was rescued for, from the slums of Memphis, Tennessee, and sort of adopted by a well-to-do family, and went from this really rough situation to a full scholarship at Ole Miss and eventually to the NFL. But one of the scenes of the movie, he's an offensive lineman. And he takes off down the field and he's blocking for the high school running back. And, and the high school running back is essentially has him by his back pocket. You know, he's just running where Michael Orr goes. And as Michael... Goes down the sideline. It's just pancake block after pancake block on all the, and the entire defense just falls down. And so this running back goes 80 yards untouched, and who gets the glory? Well, we say definitely Big Mike, but the running back does too, because he is hidden in Big Mike. This is what it means to be hidden in someone it means that he paved a way through hostile enemy territory. And whatever judgment or hit was to land on this running back, instead it landed on Big Mike. Union with Christ says the same thing, that your life is so intertwined, so interconnected with the life of Jesus Christ, that when he died, you died. And everything that was supposed to land upon him, the judgment of God, his wrath against sin, instead it landed on Jesus. And so to be hidden in Christ means that Christ represents us. Whatever is true of Christ becomes true of me, becomes true of you. Whatever victories he's won, whatever accomplishments that he's earned, whatever status that he possesses, I have that. I possess that now in Christ. We see something of this in 1 Samuel 17, where Goliath is facing off against David. And to begin with, you have the Philistine army on one side of the valley, and on the other side you have the Israelite army. And Goliath shouts out, he said, you pick one man and let him represent your people. And if he comes down and I fight him, then whoever wins, the other people, the whole army will be subject to you as servants. And so what happens when David goes out, he represents, he becomes the representative head of of all of Israel so that every man, woman, and child in the nation of Israel, is now represented by whatever happens for David. Any victory, any accomplishment is now appropriated to them. And so for us to be in Christ means that we are so united to him that all he has accomplished to us is given to us. He represents us so thoroughly that Galatians 2.20 says, we are crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, Romans 6.4, raised with Christ, Colossians 3, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so what that means is that when we share in Christ when we, share, when Christ, when we are hidden in Christ, that every part of his life, we share in that. His life, his obedience, his death, his resurrection, even his ascension, and all this becomes ours. And so that's why Paul can lay out all this stuff in Ephesians 1 and say, that's true of you. That's true of you. That's, true. that's who you are. And he can do it without flinching because he knows, like, The people of Ephesus sin too, every day. And yet he says it without flinching because he knows it's because of Christ. You're hidden in Christ that all this stuff is true. And so what that means is that you and I have the deepest identity reservoir that we could ever imagine, that we can tap into continually. There is full freedom, full acceptance. There is now nothing left to lose, nothing left to prove. What could you possibly add? How could we ever feel insecure? How could we ever feel like we have to work on our reputation or that something at work could add to this? We have everything, every spiritual blessing, and it's in Christ. Number two, what union with Christ means is not only do we have all that security and assurance, but it also means that Christ is in us. And so that we have his power and his ability available. Jesus said some really strange things to his closest followers, to his disciples, right before he died. One of the things that he said was in John 16. And he said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, if you think about that, the 12 disciples had an all-access pass to Jesus for three years. What could be better than having Jesus beside you almost every day? What could be better than the hat? Well, Jesus tells them, because they'd probably be wrestling with the same question that we have. Yeah, like, I would like that. Can, if I, Things would be going better if I could just be with Jesus every day whenever I needed him. And yet he says in John 14... I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you do know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So what what could be better than having Jesus beside you and with you almost every day The only thing that could be better is if Jesus lived within you. Within you, wherever you went. All the time. And so that's what union with Christ is telling us. Is that because of his work for us on the cross, we have this Holy Spirit of Christ living within us. It's the hope of glory. Christ in you. Colossians 1. I mean, this is the only way that Jesus can look his disciples in the eye in Matthew one or at 28, and say, "I am, behold, I'm with you always. What he means is not that my teaching is with you always, or that I leave you with really good memories of me, and really memorable lessons of the things that I've shown you. And so you'll carry that with you wherever you go. No, he means I am in you. My spirit is in you. And so if your position hidden in Christ means security, then being Christ in you means his power living inside you. His accomplishments belong to you, but his ability as well. Let me try to illustrate it this way. It would be one way, one thing for me to say that I am a fan of LeBron James and the LA Lakers. And so therefore, when they won, when LeBron won the NBA championship this year, <laughs> well, I get to go to work and say, we won, you know, because I'm part of that. What? Not really. It's a whole nother thing. For me to say that LeBron James and I share a mystical union. We share oneness together. And so really LeBron is in me and I'm in LeBron. And so I can say that not just when he was with the lake, but I have won four NBA championships. I have won four league MVPs. I have played in 16 NBA all-star games. I have two Olympic gold medals to my name. You say, that's crazy. What's even crazier is not just his accomplishments, but his ability. I also have LeBron James' ability to be able to shoot like he shoots, pass like he passes, jump and dunk and run. And we would say, that's kind of crazy. As crazy it is to think that there is a gap, there's no gap between my ability to play basketball and LeBron James'. Well, it's even crazier to think that outside of Christ, who I am outside of Christ could be linked to, and my my accomplishments and my abilities are one in Christ. And yet Jesus and all of the New Testament authors, they are not bashful about this. They proclaim it loudly over and over again, that to be united to Christ is to have the Spirit of Christ within you. The Spirit is the real living bond between Jesus and us. So Paul says, Listen, in Romans 8, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't have Christ. Same, it's one and the same. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells within you? 2 Corinthians 13, do you not realize this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you. So now we see that this union with Christ motif that's running throughout Ephesians and all the New Testament is this idea that twofold, I am hidden in Christ, I am in Christ, and that he is in me. On the one hand, it settles and creates profound security and assurance, and on the other hand, it gives me incredible ability. Listen to what Rankin-Wilburn says in his book, Union with Christ. Uh, this is a fabulous book. We, we read this in discipleship last year. If you've not read Union with Christ This has got to be the next book. I mean, you got to pick this up. It's so good. He says, The Spirit in us now guides and forms us more and more into the family likeness. The same Christ who overcame every temptation and was perfectly obedient, that Jesus is in you now. The Jesus who had compassion on the crowds, who healed the sick, that Jesus is in you. The humble Jesus who led as a servant, who washed his disciples' feet, he's in you. The Jesus who repeatedly shattered racial barriers with his teaching and his life, that Jesus is in you. The Jesus who suffered and loved to the end, he dwells in you. And that Jesus who is raised to new life, that Jesus is living in you right now. So here's my question. What does that mean for us? at four o'clock on a Wednesday, (laughs) the most ordinary time in your week. Let's say it's four o'clock on a Wednesday. How do these profound realities, how are they meant to affect you in those moments? What it means is that these realities, that holiness, more and more Christ-likeness, at four o'clock on a Wednesday are not beyond you, that you possess them already. That more and more Christ-likeness is within you. It's not beyond you, but within you. Loving your spouse well. Being patient with your kids. Powering off the computer when lust and temptation hit. Somehow avoiding temptation and addiction. We are not obeying anymore from a deficit. What this is telling us is that Christ is within us. That we have all the power of the Holy Spirit to move forward into holiness and to move forward in fruitfulness and obedience because Christ is in us, the fullness of Christ. How can I reflect the the character of God in the ordinary every day? Well, I want you to know that this is what you were created for. This is how you were outfitted in Christ. He has clothed you with righteousness And now what we are doing is not achieving or attaining something that's beyond us and we're incapable of. We are actually growing into the family clothing as we are maturing and maturing and growing. My son Caleb's 15 and he hit a growth spurt this past year. And so what that means is that for the first time, he could put some of my clothes on and they'll fit, kind of. And which is cool because the more that we fit the same clothes our grandparents just buy our kids clothes and you know it's the reality and and they always end up with better clothes so my hope is can our shoes can we trade shoes some he always has better shoes than me and the reason that Caleb is growing into my clothes is because he's becoming the man that he's meant to be he's growing in family resemblance And the more and more that we walk with Christ and hold on to our union with Christ, the promises of Christ in us are simply simply allowing us to experience and grow in who God has intended us to be. It's not trying to achieve or attain something in terms of obedience that you're not capable of. You have the fullness of Christ within you. It's not beyond you. It's who you are. Here's what Rankin-Wilburn says, one more quote from him. It is therefore not preacherly hyperbole to say that you will never hear something more amazing in your entire life. Union with Christ touches on the highest and most profound truths of the gospel and at the same time reaches down into the depths of the human heart to fill us with more joy and hope, more comfort and strength than anyone else ever could is there any truth that we need to lay hold of today more than our union with Christ? I would say no. And so lastly, how do we lay hold of it? How do we tap into the identity reservoir? How do we access all these beautiful blessings that Christ has purchased for us and given to us in Ephesians 1? So let's quickly summarize. Being in Christ means two things. It means us hidden in him, him in us. And that gives us two things. It gives us security and assurance. It gives us power and ability. And the way that we appropriate it or access it is through two things. And Andrew mentioned it earlier. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. This is what it looks like to walk in the gospel moment by moment every day. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. So let's look at these passages, Ephesians 1.13. Here's Paul pointing to it. He says, And you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. So you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having believed. Believe is the Greek word there for faith. You were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Having believed is present perfect tense for that verb. It means that something has been accomplished with ongoing implications and effect. So whatever we're doing when we believed that brought about this inclusion and union with Christ, we are to continue doing those same things throughout our Christian experience, which is what Paul points to in Colossians 2. Therefore, as you received Christ, you think about that day where you were at in your spirit and in your heart when you first believed and came to Christ. What were you doing in that moment? You were answering the three questions who am I, what do I possess, and where am I headed? You began to answer those questions now in light of Christ and in Christ. You no longer thought about, you know, am I going to get married? Who am I attached to? How much money will I make? How good are my kids? What stat? None of that. You turned from that, and you began to believe in Christ. Paul says, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Repent, believe. This is a gospel two-step. You walk in repentance and faith. Now, I know that if you're like me, that can feel overwhelming. You mean all day long, every time sin hits or temptation, it's go back to the drawing board, repent and believe. Ah, This feels incredibly overwhelming. And what we would say is walking is sometimes like that. It's like that when you're first starting out. Think about Miles Pollard right now. Is he six, seven months? You know, he's he's figuring it out. He's on the end table, kind of creeping along. Fall, tumble, it hurts. And walking also is hard when we've atrophied and we've been laying down or not doing it for a long time. Suddenly we get up and our legs are asleep. And so what, what we're being called to do is to exercise these faith muscles, repent and believe. Repent and believe. And I want to promise you this. I want to promise you this. The more you do this, stick with it. You will end up experiencing the payoff of union with Christ. It will become second nature to you. You will walk around in your relationships, at work, tapping into union with Christ, experiencing his power. This is how we access it. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And it comes along with the word of truth, as we hear the word of truth and receive the gospel. I'm going to close with a story by Dr. Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. He tells this story. It's really beautiful. It's a picture of how Christians should really live in our wealth. Sometimes we don't know that we have it. And our wealth is found in our union with Christ. So he told the story of a man named Mr. Yates, who lived at the time of the Great Depression. Mr. Yates was a farmer, a sheep rancher in Texas, and he was incredibly poor. He had to live on a government subsidy just to be able to feed his family. And yet, one day, there was this seismographic crew that came to his farm. And they said, Mr. Yates, we have reason to believe that you could have an oil reserve on your property. Would you mind if we tested it? And so he was like, yeah, let's sign the paperwork. Let's talk about this. And so they began to drill a wildcat well. And when they hit 1,115 feet into his farmland, they came across an oil reserve. And that first well that they hit came in at over 80,000 barrels of oil per day. And 30 years later, that same well was still producing 125,000 gallons or barrels of oil a day and so here's the point Mr. Yates he actually owned all of that he possessed it it was his but he lived for a long time like a very poor man he Had all this wealth available and accessible to him but he didn't know how to access it he wasn't aware of it and he wasn't consciously tapping into it And so what we would say is, brothers and sisters, what Ephesians has been telling us is that you are rich in Christ. You are rich in Christ. You are so rich in Christ. Why would we ever live like we are in spiritual poverty? We have everything in Christ. So my prayer for us is that we in this Advent season would live in the wealth that we have in Jesus. That we would live radically, great. Christ-centered lives, radical grace, lives of radical discipleship, and that that would happen for us, not because we're putting our faith in how great our faith is or how great our repentance is or, or how many times we've blown it this week or how disciplined we've been, but our faith would be singularly focused in Christ. That's my prayer, because all the blessings of Christ are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, could this be true? Uh, We long for it to be true. We long to access it, tap into it, to be shaped and molded by the truth of the gospel. And so, Lord God, we pray that this would be an Advent season of resting again securely In our union with Christ, help us to tap into it through repentance and faith. God, even today, whatever relationships we have or wherever we're tempted towards insecurity and fear, give us the power to repent and believe and to turn back to you. And help us to experience our union with Christ, the power and the ability to move forward in obedience. God, we love you. You've done it all for us. And so we ask simply that we would be able to respond. To the praise of your glory, in Christ's name, amen.